0: Who is Poxel West, Jewish World War II fighter pilot? Novelist Daniel Torday will be here to talk about the titular hero of his new book, The Last Flight of Poxel West.
1: What might have started as a sort of idea of a revenge fantasy became something very different, both in the midst of writing and after seeing that Quentin Tarantino movie and recognizing that it wasn't quite as much of a fantasy as uh, as that movie might have imagined.
0: What do we learn about Barney Frank in his memoir? Frank Bruni will be here to talk about his review of Frank.
2: He's more candid than I've heard him before on on liberals, um, and how they've how they've disappointed him and how they may have disappointed themselves.
0: Alexander Alter will share her notes from the publishing world, and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Daniel Torday is here now. His book, The Last Flight of Poxel West, is reviewed this week on the cover of the book review by Teddy Wayne. Hi, Daniel.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, thank you for being here. So this is your first novel, a, a debut novel, but you've written a novella, you've written many short stories. How long were you, was this sort of novel- sitting with you? How long were you working on it?
1: So I think I thought it would take a lot less time than it did. Um, I started about nine years ago. um, And actually, the novella that I published first, uh, I started after I started this book. I had written a sort of like 100-page version of it and then realized that I had a lot more homework to do. So I had two more trips to Eastern Europe to make uh, and a lot of book reading to do. And so in that process, there were many iterations of the stories that were being told in there. And just taking that time to go back over and figure out what I needed to know accounted for a lot of that time. All right. We're going to talk about all that homework because that's such a big part
0: of uh, of the novel. But first, let let's. what's the novel about for those who haven't read it?
1: So there are two narratives in this book. Uh, one is- There are the, two books in this book. There are two books in this book. That's right. Um, one is a memoir that's written by the title character, Paxil West. Uh, he was- Born in a city north of Prague and then from Prague ended up during World War II going to Rotterdam and then on to London where he trained to fly for the Royal Air Force. So, so that's the first narrative and it's the memoir that he's written called Skylock. Uh, the other narrative is it's Boston. And it's the 1980s and there's a narrator named Eli Goldstein. Poxel is his nominal uncle. They're not actually related but he thinks of him as his Uncle Poxel. And he tells the story of the reception of this memoir that Poxel has written. Which becomes a huge hit. Which has become a huge hit. Uh, It's 1986 in Boston, and there are a lot of people who are ready for there to be a story of a Jewish war hero from World War II. And so the book itself, both because of its quality, but also because of the subject matter, becomes a hit. And uh, Eli tells the story of the complicated reception that the book gets after its success.
0: It seems like there is a kind of current fixation on this idea, this this dream fantasy of the Jewish war hero as the inglorious bastards. And did you... Have that idea before? Glorious Bastards was this sort of. Where did you get that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there's sort of are two answers, and one is to the Inglorious Bastards question. That movie actually came out about four years after I started thinking of writing this book. And so he
0: got it from you secretly, so,
1: Quentin. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it was a coincidental, but. I had that moment where in the midst of writing, I thought, oh, no, like maybe I need to start over. Um, Someone's
0: just done a movie of my uh, book and my book isn't out yet. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Has he hacked my brain? But after seeing the movie, you know, it became clear that we were doing two very different things. There's this sense in the way that that movie plays out that there's this almost like revenge fantasy of seeing, you know, Hitler's face sprayed with bullets. To the second answer to your question, my grandmother had a first cousin who was living in London. And I sort of had always heard these stories of his having left his home in the city of Leibniz and ending up in London where he trained for the Royal Air Force. So I went to London and talked to him and he actually was injured during training so he never flew any sorties. But it opened up this sort of whole whole history that I knew nothing about. Um, And I did a fair amount of sort of following up and, and reading on Eastern European Jews and also Eastern Europeans who ended up fighting. Uh, for the war effort uh, in the latter half of the war, but, you know, I think for me, what might have started as a sort of idea of a revenge fantasy became something very different. Both in the midst of writing and after seeing that Quentin Tarantino movie, and recognizing that it wasn't quite as much of a fantasy as uh, as that movie might have imagined, but also that, in the in that, the sense
0: that it might have been more, there might have been more reality to it. Than sure, there. I
1: mean, th- nobody sprayed Hitler with bullets at the time, but there certainly were Jews who fought for the war effort, both in Canada, in the United States, and. Uh, in Britain. And so there were uh, these stories of sort of uh, um, not just victimhood, but but of uh, different ways in which violence was being perpetrated during that period.
0: You also enter, you know, not uncharted territory in terms of a novel that looks into the Holocaust and into World War II. Was that something that you always wanted to do? Did
1: you have trepidation about that? I had trepidation about it, at least because You know, I never really thought of it exactly as being a Holocaust book. So very pointedly, the capital H Holocaust word doesn't appear anywhere in this book. It doesn't appear in the promotional materials. You know, I want to be very careful in the way I think about this or talk about it. But I think for me, when I was a teenager, there was a way in which using that sort of uh, capital H word might get in the way of being able to think about some of the particularities of what went on day to day in that war. Or it might be a way to say, well, here's a way to sort of not think about those specificities. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of dance around that a little bit. There is a sense that there could be a saturation of stories about World War II.
0: You know, we get many of them at the book review and people still want to read them and people still want to write them. So we're obviously not there yet.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, I think for me, in some ways, the sort of moment, my, um, my grandmother died in the 1990s and my grandfather died uh, four or five years ago and they had survived World War II in Hungary through very complicated means. And there is this moment where, you know, those survivors are sort of having uh, their last moments on Earth. And so isn't this a moment for us to sort of look back and just say, well, what was that war and what was it for for those people?
0: It's interesting, you know, that there was a wave of survivor's tales. And now what we're seeing is the children of the survivors and their stories and how it affected them
1: yeah and that's I think uh, for me that's that's what I want to write about and that's what this book is about is to say there's just such a long tale um, my favorite books going all the way back to like Genesis are often about you know a huge trauma that just has these um, ripples that continue for for decades or generations I love Marilyn Robinson's housekeeping and William Faulkner's Absalom to Absalom that are books about a single death in a family that might have been a 50 to 100 years ago and yet for the children and grandchildren, that's still what they're dealing with day to day. The historical aspect of this that to me feels fresh and felt new was that actually right around the time that I started writing this book, um, W.J. Zebald had had written this um, book that was based on a lecture called On the Natural History of Destruction. And Mm -hmm. it was really the first time, to my understanding of it, that Germany started to grapple with Allied bombing at the end of the war. For very good reasons, it wasn't a thing that was talked about in Germany. It also wasn't a thing that was talked about a whole lot here. To me, that part of the history actually is new. I mean, it was only 2003 that that book, or 2004, that that book was translated into English. So this grappling with the hundreds of thousands of German civilians, over 100 cities that were destroyed in Germany during the war, it kind of is news. It's a history that wasn't something that we talked about a lot. And so um, both for me and I think— for the world. Uh, that That's not an old, you know, 60-year-old history, even right. a fresh one.
0: Well, and there's also so many, you know, there are so many small worlds within this larger story. You set your uh, story, the very beginning of it, or the beginning of Poxel's part of the story, in Czechoslovakia.
1: You know, some of it uh, is just sort of unearthing the stories that I wanted to unearth. Um, so for me, when I went to try to trace the steps that this character would have taken and also that uh, a number of people from the Czech part of my family had had gone to, I got on an airplane and I flew into Prague and I took a bus up to the small city of Leipmritz where there was a leather factory that my family had uh, owned.
0: Okay. I was wondering how much you knew so so much about the leather trade. Yeah. in Greater uh, Prague,
1: exactly. Uh, so, th- so there was, um, you know, a part of the family that had this leather factory, and um, and the sort of the very long tales that came off of that all continued through, you know, when I was in college. So, for me, being able to say, like, well, I can fly to this city and see the remains of what was that leather factory. I actually never found the remains themselves, but I walked this river through these cities called Leitmeritz and Schalholstis. and then uh, took a train back to Prague and took another long train ride over to Rotterdam and then up to London, where I found one of the, my grandmother's cousins who had been through this experience. So so it was sort of both walking those steps and actually just sort of trying to retrace the path.
0: With the leather factory and, and also the title of Poxel West's book, there are these Philip Roth references
1: is that was that deliberate
0: i'm a big philip roth reader
1: i'm a huge philip roth fan uh It turns out I actually came to Philip Roth's work later than I probably should have. Um, You know, I was raised as a Jewish kid in the suburbs of Boston and Baltimore. So you couldn't Um, be
0: totally Philip Roth free?
1: I could never be totally Philip Roth free. (laughs) How could we be? I believe this publication at one point called him the greatest living writer. So I'll I'll go with that. So, you know, I've read virtually all of Roth. And I I think it's hard. It's very hard to be a Jewish American writer, but it's hard to be a writer in 2015 and not have some of the – both the huge influence that he's thrown off and also the fact that he's not writing new fiction now um, as something that's going to always linger over us. I return to that work all the time. He has some very famous Prague books. So going to Prague, you know, there was both the sort of family history, but then also those moments of having the overlay of having read the Prague orgy and having uh, read all of these Roth books where he's taking those ideas up. So it's sort of always in the back of the head.
0: The book, as we mentioned earlier, is a a memoir within a novel. How much of it was a challenge for you just as a writer to kind of – keep those narratives separate, keep those voices separate, two very different narrators. It was a
1: huge challenge. Uh, and in some ways for me, and I never wanted it to sound like this was actually intentional because I was just feeling around in the dark, but but I did have to keep them separate. So actually for years I was working on Poxel's memoir and there was this other narrator who wasn't Eli who had essentially just written a preface saying that he had gotten this book as a manuscript in the mail and it never really worked. Uh, but for years it was there and I think it was there by necessity as this kind of scaffolding to allow me to do the work of the Poxwell sections. And then very late in the process, I actually uh, attempted a short story called Acknowledgement, in which th- there was a new character named Eli Goldstein, and his uncle actually was uh, Uncle Saul. And that actually sat for a while, and then at some point I realized, well, wait, what if I were to intersplace these two books together? Uh, it didn't take a lot of work to find and replace Saul with Poxel. But Although Poxel
0: is a very unusual name. You do the sort of etymology of that nickname. Have you ever met anyone named Poxel?
1: He actually was my father's uncle. Um, the, the, he had an uncle named Poxel uh, in, whose long tail was always sort of p- part of this, these family histories and it was his brother who was one of the main uh, influences on the book itself um, the uncle who uh, whose name was Poxel, actually was, was taken to a death camp. And so there's a sort of morbid history to that side of things. But the name itself just felt too good to not use. Right. Uh, it's not something I'd ever heard before. Uh, the way it was explained to me as a sort of one of those like rationalizing but makes no sense things was, uh, well, Leopold, Leopold, Leopoldi, Leopox, Leopoxel, Poxel. Which is in the book. Which is, which is in the book. Uh, it feels like its own kind of sophistry getting from Leopold to Poxel, but apparently that is a Czech nickname.
0: So if we, you've mentioned a few times um, aspects of your own family history, and if you kind of uh, looking at your, your age, the timeline, it sounds like Eli in certain ways could be a stand-in for you. Is he?
1: You know, it's always hard to know how much decisions that you make while you're just in the midst of the game are intentional. Uh, I think Eli is probably a solid 10 years older than me. Okay. So, so, uh, so I was, I was eight.
0: I didn't mean to inadvertently uh, say that you looked older than you did.
1: I've lost a fair amount of hair, um, but there was a way in which. Uh, you know, I think I was eight during in 1986 when this starts being narrated. And so I wouldn't have quite been old enough to make this thing happen. But just sort of in the midst of writing, uh, there was this sense that, like, you know, the character needed to be cognizant of what was going on, but also young enough that there was that sort of adolescent scrim to which the story was being told. And also, you know, I teach a lot of writing workshops down at Brimard College where I teach. And, and one of the things I talk about with my students a lot is at the moment where a character is so autobiographical, that you don't feel like you have control over them. Well what if you just gave them one or two characteristics that are just totally not true of you? And then in doing that suddenly maybe suddenly the material feels malleable. It's very freeing. It's it freeing and also um you know kind of cuts the tree off at the roots so that you can then try to build whatever you need to build with.
0: All right. Well, I don't want to go in too much more about the plot of the story because there is a, a, a big twist or two. Um, so let's end there. Um, the book, again, is The Last Flight of Poxel West by Daniel Torday. Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you, Pamela. Alexander Alter joins me now with an update on the Harper Lee controversy. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Pamela. All right. What's the latest? It's been about a month since HarperCollins announced
3: that they're publishing a second book by Harper Lee. And, you know, right away there were doubts about her involvement in it, given her age and her infirmity. And now the state of Alabama has started an investigation into her condition. There was an anonymous complaint of elder abuse, we learned. And to follow up on that, they've sent investigators to interview her for two days, to interview her friends and caretakers, and um, possibly, you know, subpoena financial records if they need to go that far. Of course, there's no way of knowing right now what the outcome of the investigation will be. These are actually, you know, confidential. And so they couldn't even confirm to us that it was happening. But it just highlights the amount of scrutiny. That um Harper Lee's publisher and her lawyer are facing now as they you know, try to put out the second book by her, which she wrote, you know more than half a century ago and set aside.
0: It's almost as if like Thomas Pynchon signed up for like a reality TV dance off or
3: something you know that's just so because it was so unexpected um, I think that's the main reason this debate is still raging. I mean, there are a number of factors. One is, you know, she's this intensely private person who hasn't given a formal interview or an extensive one since the nineteen sixties. And she can't address it directly. All of her statements are coming through her lawyer and publisher. And I think that's why the skepticism has persisted.
0: Right. I mean, all she has to do really, in a way, is let in one media outlet and Perhaps just us. have a face to face. Right. Well, we've had a reporter down in Monroeville.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, we've 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 asked a number of times if we could interview her. You know, the answer has been no, she she doesn't want to give interviews and that you know, that's well in keeping with her standard practice. So it's not unusual for her. It just makes it harder to clear up this this sort of skepticism and controversy over the book. Obviously, people are going to read it. They're printing two million copies. This is only the second book to ever come from her. And it's apparently, you know, the book that she wrote before, To Kill a Mockingbird, has many of the same characters, Scout and Atticus. But I think in order for people to know how to approach it and feel about it, it would be it would be helpful if some of these questions could be addressed and the questions are only sort of lingering and getting murkier.
0: Well, part of the problem seems to be is that, the, you know, that there's such a wide disparity between what people are saying. On the one hand, people are saying, oh, no, she's lively and funny and kicking and, you know, uh, fully into this book. And the other one is, you know, saying she's confused. She can hardly hear. She can't really have a full conversation. But, you know, and then you can can kind of argue with each side. Like there was something in your story about um, after the death of her sister who had acted as her representative for so many years that she was lying in a fetal position on the bed. Well, someone might do that after the death of their sister.
3: Exactly. And the conflicting accounts that we've heard about her condition seem, you know, entirely consistent with how somebody might be after a stroke, you know, years after a stroke, someone who's 88. You know, you have good days and bad days, as we all do. But I think the reason that it's so hard to reconcile the accounts is just because no one has direct access to her apart from, you know, lawyers and close friends. And a lot of people in the town, um, it's become a very divisive issue. People are sort of lining up against the lawyer or for the lawyer. People are Um, saying that there's no way Harper Lee authorized this book. This is going to be sort of a stigma on our town. Other people are saying, of course she did. This is something we should be celebrating. This is only going to help us. You know, her legacy is very important to this small town of around, you know, 6,500 people. Um, It's where, you know, Truman Capote lived and they call themselves the literary capital of Alabama. So it's become an important issue for the whole town.
0: Well, the book doesn't come out till July, so we have several more months to discuss. That's true, and more
3: stories will be coming, I'm sure. All right, stay tuned,
0: Alexander. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Frank Bruni is here to talk about his review of Barney Frank's new memoir, Frank. Hi, Frank. <laughs> Frank on Frank. Yeah. That's right. Um, I know, actually. had that as that's a headline. Why you, that's why you and assigned was, this to me, right?
2: Because you wanted Frank on Frank? We
0: were just typecasting. Um, I had that as a headline, and I was told that was too punny, so it's no you longer— didn't. You really didn't. I would never do that. Okay, so this is Barney Frank's memoir, and let's just cut to the chase. Is it good? Is it interesting? Is it juicy.
2: It is not juicy. Um, And I think that will strike people. It is strangely impersonal for a memoir. And I noticed, interestingly, that most of the um, descriptions of it from the publishing house elsewhere said autobiography. This is one of those cases where I suspect that's just not another word. They're calling it an autobiography in part because it doesn't read like a memoir. It's not very emotional, it's not very personal. And that would be fine, and it is fine in some ways, except I think every book kind of um, needs to be judged by the promises it makes. And right at the start, he notes in the first paragraph, he talks about gay. You know, he was the first volitionally, openly gay um, member of the, of the House of Representatives or, or the Senate, for that matter, as well, that we had. And he says right at the start of the book, you know, I had these two facets of my life that were not going to be so compatible. I wanted a political career and I was a gay man, or I am a gay man. And by beginning that way, you expect to hear certain things about his life as a gay man in a world that wasn't quite, that wasn't nearly as open as it is now. Um, And that's where the book doesn't really come through in the way you want. That said, Barney Frank is and has always been one of the smartest, most astute observers of politics that we have. And so when he's talking about how the House of Representatives works, when he's diagnosing where liberals have gone right and gone wrong, he's very, very good. So I think that People who are, who, are, who are really deeply into politics and want that sort of inside glimpse, I think I think might find a lot in this book that they'll love.
0: He was also, um, in addition to being one of the smartest and, and wittiest or sharpest um, of the House members, one of the most outspoken, sort of willing to say things that other people wouldn't say. It sounds like he doesn't say that about his sex life here. But in terms of politics, in terms of talking about people now that he's out of power, how open is he on that front?
2: Well, he doesn't spend a lot of time kind of trashing or exalting people. I mean, there there are some passages where he's uh, very mean uh, toward Dick Cheney. <laughs> but Dick Cheney's the number of people who've been mean toward Dick Cheney or said nasty things about him. That's that's a very, it's very. It's not more daring yeah, to come
0: out in favor yeah, of Dick Cheney, perhaps. Yeah, I
2: was going to say you could populate <laughs> an entire country with those people. Um, he's more candid than I've heard. Him before on on liberals mm-hmm. um, and how they've how they've disappointed him and how they may have disappointed themselves.
0: How have they disappointed well, him? He's
2: really interesting when he talks about what he was trying to do in being an advocate for the gay community. And when he talks about sort of uh, the early leadership of some of the gay organizations, he doesn't really name names so much. He's not trying to settle scores. But he talks about uh, how there was a habit to do grand public announcements, grand public uh, demonstrations, the kinds of things that feel theatrical. And I don't mean that. The protest march side. The kind of things that are very kind of cathartic for the doer and all that. But he makes the point that what the NRA does um, that makes it so effective is it does not kind of stage grand public events that make everybody kind of feel like they're in the spotlight. It does the kind of tedious hard work of getting everybody to write their legislator, to call their representative. And he said that, and sort, of, send that, money. that, sort, that sort of grassroots drudgery, if you will, right. he is saying, is what really, really ends up changing the vote count. A march – that lets everybody have a moment in the sun and feel very good doesn't really change the vote count. I think that is something that's an observation that's been made before. He makes it with particular keenness and I think uh, power in this book.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, just his biography. Um, he grew up in New Jersey. Does mm-hmm. he talk a lot about his childhood about no, formative experiences? No, he
2: zooms very quickly through his childhood. In fact, it's interesting. His sister is Anne Lewis, who was a long time. Uh, affiliate of the Clintons and all that. She was in the White House for a while. I almost forgot that until we got to it in the book, because he zooms so quickly through his childhood that by the time he kind of says, "My sister Anne, who was," it's like, "Oh, I'd forgotten that." Like I wasn't, I wasn't even clear that he had siblings. Um, he says very little, for instance, about his dad to the point where, uh, at the point in the book where his dad dies, and I'm not giving away too much. It happens early. He mentions it as a financial predicament and moves on. And I never got a sense of what his feelings about his father were. So his childhood is is. Something thing that I got the feeling he wanted to rush through because what he really wants to do is tell you about how Congress works, tell you about his time there um, and make some observations about, you know, what's wrong and what's right in our – in our right. on Capitol Hill. Now, how
0: long was he in Congress?
2: More than a quarter century.
0: He was there, you know, during, uh, during the 80s, during the 90s, during the – He was there during
2: Monica. He was there during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which he talks about at great length.
0: When you say that he wants to talk about how Congress works, is he yet another person who's spent a long time in Congress who says, like, it has just gotten much, much worse? Or does he say, look, it's been difficult the whole way along?
2: I think he arrives and it's already difficult, but I think he thinks it's gotten worse. And what he's particularly interested in is how low the public regard for it has become. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, he describes parties that are as entrenched as ever, I mean, as, as entrenched against each other as ever. And yes, you get the sense reading the book that the institution he joined has devolved in terms of its effectiveness in terms of comedy, all that sort of stuff. yeah. Why did he leave Congress? He was interested in possibly getting a Senate seat, and then that didn't quite work out. He was going to get the appointment after he was hoping to get the appointment after uh, Kennedy died. He left, I think, because he felt like his time was over. I mean, he'd just gotten married. Mm -hmm. One of the things he says frequently in the book, and and what's frustrating is I wanted to know more what that meant, he observes frequently that he never kind of gave his personal life the attention that it probably deserved. Right. I got the sense that he left Congress because, um, in a very sweet and somewhat sad way, because we all have regrets, he had met a man he loved, he'd gotten married, and at this point, even though he's in his 70s, was kind of ready to attend to his private life in a way that he'd shortchanged by being um, a congressman, a public servant, however you want to term it.
0: So does he give a sense of, you know, is there a sense of bitterness of, we didn't get what we wanted to get done, I didn't want, this is not how I wanted to leave things, or does it feel more like, uh, you know, my time here has ended and now I'm giving you this retrospective it didn't look? Fe- he, didn't,
2: he didn't feel to me bitter about his tenure in Congress. He felt bitter and, and defensive about... Uh, he got a lot of a lot of people talked about Fanny Fanny Mae Freddie Mac, and a lot of people kind of fingered him as one of the as one of the people responsible for the housing bubble that that whole crisis. Um, he makes a pretty persuasive case that that's not right, and that's a misreading of history and a misremembering of what he did. He spends enough time on that that I think that's where his bitterness is. He does not want, and I think that's probably one of the big motivations in him writing the book, he does not want his legacy to involve several sentences saying that he had um, any culpability or responsibility for the, for the collapse of the, the housing market and the housing crisis. So this is
0: a bit of a setting the record straight. Yeah,
2: yeah. And I have to say, he's pretty persuasive in that. I'm not an expert on that crisis. And, you know, that sort of money stuff uh, is not my... My strength, but he writes pretty persuasively about that, and I think uh, if that's one of his goals, it's one that he will have accomplished for those people who are persuadable.
0: The book is also about um, his coming out as the first gay man in Congress, as you say, and you tell a funny story in your review about Tip O'Neill. Yes, please tell. I
2: love this story in the book, and I wish the book had. More. I mean, it has a couple of these, and, and uh, I wish it had more of them. But um, he told Tip O'Neill that he was going to be uh, identifying himself what, publicly as homosexual. This is. Uh, it was '86, I believe, and um, he told Tip O'Neill the truth of who he is, who he was, um, and that he was going to be publicly honest about it. And uh, Tip O'Neill was devastated. He recounts, uh, but not because he thought differently of Barney, but because he thought this was going to really um, uh, curtail what might have been his political career. And as Tip went around informing other people in leadership and in his staff what was going on, he went to his then press secretary, Chris Matthews, who's doing something different today, and he said, Chris. Something big's happening. Barney's going to come out of the room. (laughs) <laughs> it's could But it's a great anecdote, not just because it's a great malapropism or whatever you want to call it, but it is a reminder. We are now also so fluent yes. in a sort of gay vocabulary or in a way to talk about gay things. This was a moment when the phrase closet wasn't even kind of in the grasp of someone like Tip O'Neill, who's a pretty well-informed guy.
0: And you talk about how he said to Pat Schroeder, he he referred to the sad news about Barney. Yeah, she,
2: she thought because he coupled that with the gay thing— um, she apparently thought it meant he was sick and had AIDS or something. What he meant by sad news was, oh, his career is really going to suffer. And his career may well have suffered. You know, who knows Who knows what Barney Frank would have been if he hadn't also been the you know, the publicly gay congressman. He did, in the end, rise very, very high, though. What was the reception to his coming out at that time? Well, I mean, it was predictably mixed, depending on where people were on the political spectrum. There, there are a few surprising things, though, um... Uh, Warren Rudman, who's a New Hampshire Republican, we know him for his balanced budget efforts and all that. Um, he was, though, a Republican, um, very supportive instantly. Barney mentions that or Congressman Frank mentions that. Um, he also mentions, and this was something I'd forgotten that was sort of troubling, just how a homophobic Sam Nunn, a Democrat, was mm-hmm. and how much Sam Nunn's opposition to gay rights in general and to gays in the military in particular, you know, gummed up all the stuff with Don't Ask, Don't Tell and really, really stalled the military's progress toward a better treatment of gays and lesbians. I think,
0: you know, people forget how brave it was to come out at that time, the height of the AIDS crisis, where, you know, many people treated uh, yeah. anyone who was gay, uh, openly gay, as, you know, a kind of a leper. Um, it it why... was brave, but
2: in his case, it was also necessary. As he explains in the book, there, there are more and more people a- a- asking questions. There are more and more people knowing because he's, he's going certain places and he's getting ever bolder. He knew he was playing a game of borrowed time. He knew that at some point, Something was going to get written, said, or many things were going to get written or said, and I think he wanted to do it on his own terms, as anyone would so it was there was bravery in it, but there was also practicality in it
0: and then, in terms of his own um actions and his public stances in Congress, did he ever feel the need to distance himself from gay rights issues, or did he sort of go all in and and support all gay rights issues? How he was, he was, was he, he was
2: more in the all in category um but that said. Um He often was butting heads with with gay leaders, gay activists, because they often had a kind of purity test on certain issues and the way certain bills were written. and he was very much about getting them passed. you know there was a there was a point in time where a non-discrimination bill. Um, there was a big debate among gay leaders, or not really among gay leaders, but between gay leaders and some of the people doing their political bidding in Congress about whether uh, transgender people should be included in it whether, or whether that was going to be a sort of poison pill to the legislation. Barney Frank often came down on the practical, let's get something done side. Um, I admire that about him, and I think he was right in a lot of those ways. But so he was all in in intent but you could ask certain gay leaders from the time and they would say no he wasn't all in because he wasn't he wasn't following the exact script we wanted him to my impression of him has always been and also uh, I think this is what the book portrays. It wasn't for lack of caring. It was that he could sometimes be a very practical, let's get something done kind of guy, which is the essence of lawmaking and to his credit, I believe.
0: Right. It sounds like with the, his frustration with liberals sort of protesting yes. and that, that pragmatism kind of defined him. He is,
2: he is. He comes across in the book as a true, true, pure liberal, but as someone who values getting something done, you know, over feeling pure. Um, and in that sense, I think it's a very winning impression that he makes. It's also interesting, I should say that uh, I spent enough time—I spent enough time in Washington—and I've done enough coverage of Congress in my time that I've crossed paths with him many times, and he was, well, like incredibly. Uh, great to watch in front of the camera because he was so quick with a quip and all that sort of stuff. He was not really that well-liked by reporters because he could be so cutting and even a little bit condescending. Um, he just kind of had very little patience and very, very prickly. What was, um, the, what was well, the
0: best worst thing you ever heard him say?
2: I can't remember specifics, but I remember he was the kind of person you kind of you girded yourself before you asked the questions and then you walked away feeling like you were the dumbest person in the world. <laughs> partly because he was so smart, but also partly because he did have have that sort of way of dealing with reporters, and I know I was—I I know I'm not alone, because a lot of us have kind of talked about this. I mean, you, there, there could almost be a, a Barney Frank post-interview recovery group, right? What's interesting—I mention that now because he addresses it in the book. I, I never realized how aware he was that that was his reputation and that reporters were scared of him and that they actually kind of felt wounded and even a little bit – you know, they felt a little bit uh, bad about him. Mm-hmm. He he addresses it in the book and I think he addresses it well because he says I've never – for people who spend their careers – these aren't his words but mine. Mm-hmm. But he basically says for people who spend their days and their careers like kind of throwing darts, finding flaw, exposing all that stuff, they are the most thin-skinned crowd I've ever met. And I have to say –
0: <laughs> right he, on. <laughs> he win, I have to say, he wins that point.
2: Very fair point. I concede that to you, Barney Frank.
0: Last question. Um, so many politicians—they are out of office and now they don't have power. And they look and they say, "This is what what should be happening. This is what should you know people should be doing. Why isn't the government doing X?" Does he? Is that in here at all? It's
2: not. It's not in the book. Um, I guess we will learn that during his book tour. This will be the perfect moment for him to either say this is how it should be done or to, or to just say I've moved on.
0: And some thin-skinned reporter can ask him that very question.
2: Yes, some thin-skinned reporter like me.
0: And we can look forward to the retort. Frank, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, the book, again, is Frank, A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage by Barney Frank, reviewed this week in the book review by Frank Bruni. Frank Bruni. Greg Coles has bestseller news. Hi Greg. Hi Pamela. What's new on the what are we doing first? Nonfiction?
4: Uh let's do fiction first. Okay. Over on the fiction side of things, there are five new titles. Um starting down at number fourteen. With a youngish writer named Ian Caldwell. He's uh, not yet 40. You may know his name. He's one half of the team who wrote The Rule of Four back in 2004. Yes. That That Dan Brownish puzzle book about a couple of Princeton students and a Renaissance mystery.
0: Right, right. A little Umberto Echoey Dan Brown. Yeah,
4: exactly. His co writer, Dustin Thomason, actually went on to have an end of the world bestseller um, a couple of years ago with a book called 1221. So now Caldwell joins him as a standalone author uh, with another. Da Vinci Code type book um, called The Fifth Gospel, which centers on the Vatican and the Shroud of Turin and is new at number 14. Um, then at number 11, a veteran, uh, both of the bestseller list and of the publishing industry, Joseph Cannon, who I just found out was formerly a president of Dutton but um, who has been on the list since 1997 uh, with his debut novel, Los Alamos. Um, Now he has his seventh novel, Leaving Berlin, new at number 11. It is another uh, historical espionage novel um, set right in the years after World War II.
0: Presumably not on the list that entire time.
4: No. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Just clarifying. All
4: right. Next. Next, number eight, Patricia Briggs, who's best known for her Mercy Thompson series of urban fantasy novels, has the fourth book in her Alpha and Omega series. Not a Mercy Thompson book. Um, They're set a little bit earlier in that same fictional universe. Um, This book is called Dead Heat, and it's new at number eight.
0: You know, when you have kids, you, you're you amazed at how much kids love series. But when we talk about the bestseller list, you realize that grown-ups really like series, too.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it, it's true. Speaking of... Uh, new at number five, Clive Cussler, uh, who's best known for his Dirk Pitt series and is now in his 80s and still going strong. Uh, he started a series a while ago with a co-writer named Justin Scott, the Isaac Bell series. They are historical mysteries uh, about a detective in uh, at the turn of the 20th century. This book, The Assassin, new at number five, uh, is about Isaac Bell. Uh, investigating murders related to Standard Oil and the monopoly there.
0: And finally, a non-series book?
4: A non-series book, but a serious book. uh, New at number three, Kazuo Ishiguro, the British novelist, who has made the list a couple of times. He's uh, the author of The Remains of the Day. He's the author of Never Let Me Go. Both of those books hit the paperback list after movie versions came out. But surprisingly, uh, this is his first hardcover bestseller. New at number three, it's called The Buried Giant, and it is a sort of fable set in post-Arthurian Britain.
0: And reviewed two weeks ago on our cover by Neil Gaiman.
4: That's right. Maybe that's why it's at number three.
0: That's the answer to everything. All right. And a nonfiction.
4: (laughs) New nonfiction this week, there are just two new titles. Down at number 12, another familiar name, Dave Barry, uh, has a book called Live Right and Find Happiness Although Beer is Much Faster. Dave Barry recently told a DJ on WGN radio in Chicago, the title of all of my books should be Another Dave Barry Book by Dave Barry, because they're basically all the same thing.
0: I think Dave Barry is right.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then at number six, um, there is another new cybersecurity book, um, Joining Future Crimes by Mark Goodman, uh, which is at number nine in its second week on the list. At number six, uh, we have a cybersecurity expert, uh, named Bruce Schneier, and his book is called Data and Goliath. It's kind of the same thing. It's looking at the surveillance state uh, and corporate surveillance and offering consumers tips on protecting their privacy.
0: If you weren't scared enough by the first book, you can get more scared reading the second.
4: Hey, three books and it becomes a trend. That's right. Okay. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela.
0: Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.